Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is veteran technology reporter John Markoff. John, good afternoon. Hi. Glad to be here. Welcome to the show. I'm honored to have you on the show. Let me introduce you to the listeners who may not be familiar with you. You are a former New York Times reporter reporting nationally on science and computing. You have been a lecturer at the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism and an adjunct faculty faculty member at the Stanford Graduate Program on Journalism. In 2013, you were awarded a Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting as part of the New York Times Project on Labor and Automation. You've published several books on the computer industry, and currently you're a research affiliate at the Stanford University Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences and researching a biography of Stuart Brand, the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog. So that's pretty awesome. You've had a fascinating career, and I have lots of questions, so let's just get into it. The the first question I have for you is, uh, you grew up in Palo Alto, and like me, you were just the right age to become aware of the personal computer revolution in the 70s, and yet you attended Whitman College in Washington State, earning a BA in sociology. So I'm curious, how did you merge your college education and interest with the emerging interest in computers? Well, in between Whitman and uh, coming back to the Bay Area, I I spent four years at the University of Oregon uh, in graduate school in sociology. And, uh, you know, I I guess how I merged my my interest in um, sociology, uh, interest in sort of the impact of technology on society, I came back here to the Bay Area uh, where I'd grown up in 1977, and I was... um, Trying to become a freelance writer, I was I was um, working for um, a little news service called Pacific News Service and writing freelance articles. Did and you give it up I, on the idea of using sociology as a stepping stone to any kind of useful career? Well, I, I, it was more that I decided I didn't want to be an academic. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I spent four years in graduate school and decided I, I really didn't want to try to become a, a, a actually at that point a newspaper reporter of all things. And uh, I showed up, you know, just as the PC industry was taking off, right? Apple mm-hmm. uh, emerged at the end of 76. Right. And uh, so I spent five years freelancing. And uh, I was actually, you know, I, I'm a child of the uh, anti-war movement, too. And so I was really very interested in the in sort of the development of uh Weapons technologies in what would become Silicon Valley. Remember, before Silicon Valley, there was actually an electronic warfare industry here. There was Lockheed was here, FMC was here. There was a, a big aerospace industry, defense industry. Probably Hewlett Packard too, with instrumentation. Well, Hewlett Packard, yeah, they sold indirectly. Hewlett Packard was never a, a pure defense contractor um, in that, in the sense of a Lockheed. Mm-hmm. So they, they yeah. were a little bit different, and you know, the companies like Intel. Uh, and and uh, the early semiconductors really resisted uh, contracting with the military because it was a pain in the ass. Um, but anyway, I, uh, 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected. Um, I you know I considered that the dark side of the force, writing about military technology, and it was just more fun to write about the PC industry. And so, like a lot of people, I got sucked into uh, the rise of personal computing. I grew up with I basically s- with. with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah. There was a time when I was in graduate school in New Mexico when I thought I should just drop out of school and go to work for Microsoft because <laughs> this is where it is at. 
it, yeah. it was pretty it was pretty obvious early on that something was going yeah. on was there a particular mentor or event that uh, inspired you or is it just awareness of the awesomeness of the pc revolution happening at the time well i was i was um I guess in terms of inspire me, I was also a, a bit of a science fiction nut. I was oh, reading yeah. a lot of what was called cyberpunk science fiction, and I really saw life imitating art. But, you know, I was also, I was around the hobbyist community. Uh, I mean, I was going to homebrew computing uh, meetings. I was not an entrepreneur, but I was, you know, really quite, uh, you know, sort of, uh, it was fun. That was that was where the action was. And Did so, you ever run into Steve Jobs or Wozniak when they brought their Apple One into the? I I missed clubs? that. I didn't I didn't show up at at those meetings. You know, remember the the club started in seventy five, and um, and I didn't really start going to homebrew meetings until seventy nine. And it was a big deal by that time. There were two or three hundred people that would show up. Um, I guess it was at Slack at that point. The Stanford Linear Accelerator Auditorium was where they were meeting. So in, in 1981, you joined the staff of uh, InfoWorld. I think I remember reading your columns. I was an early subscriber. Yeah, I was just looking through. I, you know, I would have three or four articles uh, an issue uh, or more. Uh, there was a small group of us, Paul Freiberger, Mike Swain, Scott Mace. Um, was Bob was Cringley on that team? He came later. Cringely yeah. was a was a, a, a Johnny come lately. No, this was this was in the fall of eighty one that I joined, and they had just gone weekly. Uh, IDC had bought uh, Jim Warren's Intelligence Machine Journal and turned it into a newspaper, and I was part of the first staff. How about John Dvorak? I remember him writing the back page. That's right. Um, Dvorak was my first. Well, he was an early editor. They hired him after I arrived, and uh, Dvorak. Uh, was running a software company actually over in Berkeley, and uh, he came in as a as an editor. And he was he was always a bit of an irreverent guy. He was a strange guy to have as an editor, but we had a lot of fun. <laughs> so then, from eighty uh, four to eighty five, you were uh, the West Coast editor for Byte, and also wrote a column for the San Jose Mercury News. <clears throat> so, what led you to leave Infoworld and kind of? scatter out and 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 were you making any livable money at the time oh yeah i know so i you know i had lived as a freelancer for five years on three thousand dollars a year i just wasn't a very good uh, business person how do you so, do that in palo alto I, where it's oh it was, so expensive. It was believe me it's no no it wasn't it wasn't like i was renting rooms for 75 dollars a month and i was living very well uh, oh. It was very easy to live at, at that point. I, you know, I got around by bike. I, I bought my first car after I got hired by Info InfoWorld. My first job as a quote senior reporter. Everybody was a senior reporter. Um, was I think they paid me twenty one thousand dollars a year, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Wow. Uh, um, but you know, it was a while ago, and uh, that was my my first real job. Pat McGovern was an interesting publisher. Um, my. I, uh, my first um, meeting with him was uh, right before Christmas in 1981. He showed up, and he walked up with an envelope, and he congratulated me on a particular story and handed me an envelope. And after he walked away, I opened it, and there was a check for over $2,000, 10% of my salary. And I thought, well, this thing, this is pretty good. <laughs> uh, it was fun uh, for three years. The reason I left uh, was because – uh, a gentleman by the name of Stuart Alsup, you know, sort of blue blood in the in the journalistic world, American, you know, the, he was, I think, the nephew of of um, 
uh, uh, let's see, there were the two Elsop brothers, and one of them was his father. And so he came from many microsystems. And when Stuart first showed up at InfoWorld, Info he knew nothing about personal computing. He was really from a different world. And it was a real cultural shift that was going on at InfoWorld. We went from being we were trying to be the sports illustrator of the personal computer industry, and, and Pat decided that we wanted he wanted us to be the business week and of uh, the PC industry. And and so none of us, uh, uh, Mike Swain, Paul Freiberger, and I all left at the same time. Um, Swain went to Dr. Dobbs, um, Paul went to Popular Computing, and I went to Byte. And for me, Byte was wonderful. Phil, L, Phil, Phil Lemons was editing Byte magazine. It was as fat as a very fat woman's magazine, like Vogue or something I like remember that. remember those um, days. Yeah, well, yeah, wasn't there would, a time when the PC magazine was every two weeks and 800 pages? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, and yeah, and Byte was part of that, and Byte was my CS degree, um, and I got tons of time to work on, on stories. I was most proud of, I wrote the first technical article on risk architectures, reduced instruction set computing, mm -hmm. And I got um, uh, help from both John Hennessy, who later became the president of Stanford, but was an electrical engineering professor, and David Patterson, who was one of the original designers of the risk approach to computing. And uh, it was just great fun, and it let me go as deep as I wanted to. Um, and I was only there for a year, maybe a little more than a year, but it was, it was just a great time to be in the midst of the valley. During that time, did you fixate yeah, but, on a particular platform like the Apple II, or did you kind of remain Catholic in I, your interests? Well, so, you know, I, there was the PC standard at that point. And, of course, in January of 1984, just as I arrived at Byte, um, uh, Apple introduced the Macintosh. And I was mm -hmm. a, you know, I had, you know, my real, I guess, if you were talking, you asked me a little while ago if there was one moment that sort of, sort of, you know, had an influence on my career. And that was really when a friend of mine who had gone to high school with me invited me to Xerox Park and I saw an Alto for the first time. So I'd been waiting for the Macintosh since 1979 when I saw my first Alto. And, uh, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a believer and, uh, you know, I, I had, I had gotten to know the Mac team pretty well. Um, you know, Steve tried to keep a lid on things, but I was hanging out with Randy Wigginton and, and Ted Kaler. Uh, who came How did you do office. that? Were you, as a journalist, were you sort of having a beer with them after work? or how Yeah, did that work? a little bit like that. I, yeah. They didn't drink beer, but I was hanging out. And it was not as shut down as, as it is now. And, I, and you know, I was, a, I, was a, I was a groupie, if you will. I was really uh, very comfortable hanging around with people who were doing the design of these PCs, and that was my idea of a good time. Um, and that was a pretty tight little community. Uh, you know, S Steve built this um, really interesting team during that period when he was sort of being pushed away from the, the center of Apple, uh, his, yeah. his group of pilots. And um, uh, it, it was a, lo a, lo a, lot of, uh, a lot of fun. They, they actually gave us a Macintosh a little bit early. We wrote um, about it technically for, uh, for Byte and... Uh, and there was a moment, actually, sort of one of my, I guess, what's, what's, I don't know how to describe this, but uh, shortly after the Mac was introduced, um, Andy Hertzfeld showed up in my office at, at Byte. I knew Andy a bit. And I was playing with a, a bit of software from the TSR days in the IBM PC world. Remember Terminate and Stay Resident? Um, oh, yeah. 
um, what was that site? Was it Sidekick? Um, it was Sidekick. Uh, 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 the um, Borland um, uh, founder had this product called Sidekick. But the, there was another product called uh, called uh, Memory Shift. And memory shift will allow you to, to basically put four applications in memory, memory simultaneously, and you could jump back and forth with them. And I showed that to Andy on my, on my PC, and he said, I can do that. And he went off, <laughs> and he did, um, he did Switcher, if you remember Switcher. If you I remember Switcher, that. yeah. Yeah, so if you looked in the, in, the, in the About Box credits to Switcher, my name was there. Um, and you know, Andy got a hundred thousand dollars from Steve on contract for doing it. And of course he added these wonderful touches. Like it, it was like a slideshow, you know, you could have one application slide into the next. Um, and that was, you know, sort of, it was while they were waiting to get a multitasking OS. Remember the Mac operating system was, it was task. interesting. The original Mac architecture was so, um, immature, no preemptive multitasking, no memory protection, single stack, double stack, yep. I think. And it was just waiting to be replaced but it, it created so much fuss and so much romance in the community yeah. that we kind of overlooked those limitations yeah yeah no it was immature but uh, we grew up along with it so that was a, <laughs> a lot of fun uh, and then and and i finally got to a newspaper in the spring of 85 got hired at uh, at the san francisco examiner um Largely because John Dvorak was a good friend of Will Hurst, who was the publisher of the Examiner. Why did you do that? Was that just another pay increase or opportunity? No, no, I, it was not. A, I never did anything for money, which was the sort of my that was my mantra: never make a decision for money, and that worked out very well. But um, I, you know, because uh, I wanted to work um, as a, a daily newspaper reporter, and uh, I'd been talking to the Mercury. And the Mercury, because I'd been a columnist at the San Jose Mercury, and they had offered me a job um, as the editor of their personal computing. You know, at that point, there was so much money in the industry that even newspapers were having weekly personal computer sections. And I just didn't want to be an editor. I had run my college newspaper, and I'd sort of told myself I would never manage anything again in my life. And so um, I turned that down, and and the examiner came along, and uh, I basically... Uh, was one of two people at the Examiner then writing about Silicon Valley in the business section. How did uh, it come to be that New York Times uh, recruited you? (laughs) That's a pretty funny story. Um, I owe my my job at the New York Times to my ex-wife, Katie Hafner. Uh, I I was married to Katie Hafner. Katie was working at Business Week. And the New York Times was planning to hire a man by the name of Paul Carroll, who was competing with the national computer writer at the New York Times, who was David Sanger at that point. Sanger was going to Japan, and Carroll was going to come to the New York Times and take his place. But at the last minute, he turned them down. Uh, the, the, um, The journal offered him a better job. And so the Times was in a bit of a panic. And they went to Andy Pollack, who was the San Francisco technology writer for the Times at that point, and said, who's good in the Bay Area? Who's covering Silicon Valley? And he said, well, Katie Hafner. She's at Business Week. And Katie was um, uh, – was, uh, she was a reporter in the, in, in, in the Business Week Bureau. And, and uh, to her everlasting credit, when they called Katie, she said, you know, I really hate writing about technology. Why don't you ask John? And so Fred Andrews, who was the business editor of the New York Times, uh, called me up, and I was so surprised I literally dropped the phone. Um, but that's how I got to the New York Times. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, we've come to the end of segment one. 
uh, in the second half of the show, I want to ask you about your writing and some technical issues. Um, but first, we have to take a commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with veteran technology reporter John Markoff. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hi, this is John Marcellaro with the Mac Observer. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where our data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing our email could put private data at risk. As I've explained before, you're being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other companies who want to profit from your information. That's why I'm taking back my privacy using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet, your iPad. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Also, ExpressVPN is rated the number one service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history or your, to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is also the answer. So protect yourself online today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash BGM. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com forward slash BGM for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash BGM to learn more. And thanks, ExpressVPN, for being our sponsor. Thank you. I'm chatting with veteran technology reporter and former New York Times science and computer reporter, John Markoff, also Pulitzer Prize winner. I want to get into that in a second. Uh, but first, uh, is there anything you want to tell me about the Kevin Mitnick affair, or do you want to just skip over that line? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be glad to answer any questions. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I could just say that I was pleased to see that after Kevin got out of prison and you know, he'd been arrested five or six times, he finally discovered that he could do a lot better consulting. And uh, he made a livelihood of what he'd done illegally in the past. And uh, that was that was nice. It only took him five tries. You wrote a book about him, right? And his I wrote affairs. two books about him. And then that got two turned books. into a movie. Uh, yeah. Well, the first book was called Cyberpunk that I wrote with Katie Hafner, which was about three young men. One of them was Kevin, who had gotten in trouble for playing around on computer networks. And then um, Kevin was arrested again in 1995. Uh, and one of the things he had done was break into the computers of a uh, a young physicist, Satoma Shimomura, and Satoma basically tracked Kevin down in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, where he was arrested and ultimately went to jail for five years. And so I helped Satoma write a book about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. All right. So is there anything else you want to tell me about that? Uh, no, there were only a couple of death threats that came out of that. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting period. Uh, all right. Well, we'll just move on then. So after several uh, previous nominations by the New York Times in 2013, you were awarded a Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting. Tell me about the writing that earned that prize. Well, so most of those, uh, most of the, those, the stories that were part of that Pulitzer Award were focused on Apple's uh, manufacturing practices in Asia. 
And um, the funny part uh, that I played in all of that is I really uh, spent a, a lot of 2012 trying to get to, to China um, to write about uh, manufacturing automation in China. Uh, I would get invitations from companies to go over there and um, they'd say, well, we can get you a visa because I was having trouble getting a visa out of the San Francisco Chinese consulate. And then they come back two weeks later and say, oh, we're so sorry, we can't get you a visa. And the reason was that the, China, the, the, the New York Times had recently written, written a series of articles about corruption at the highest levels of the Communist Party, and we were persona non grata in, uh, in China. And uh, I wanted what was, was, was uh, I wanted a, uh, a temporary uh, journalistic visa, and I just couldn't get one. And after trying for a half a year, I gave up, and I looked around the world. And I found this Phillips plant in Drachten um, in the Netherlands, and uh, I went to I went to Europe instead. And it was quite remarkable because Phillips had been planning on um, uh, sort of creating a new high end uh, 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 shaver product uh, in China, and then they, they they changed their mind and they they moved to Drachten. They built this lights out. A completely automated factory for building electric shavers, and I reported on that. And it was a story about the sort of the new wave of robotics and artificial intelligence. This was 2012. Remember, machine learning was starting to be a factor, and we've been writing a lot about that. And uh, that was my contribution, basically arguing that you know we're we're mistreating all these workers, and but you know don't worry, we may just toss them all out of out of work <laughs> in the future. I want to ask so. you some more about that in a minute, but uh, I want to ask you quickly, if you might, don't mind, how much is a no, uh, how much is a Pulitzer Prize worth in 2013? Well, what do you mean worth in terms I mean, of what financial remuneration? Oh, nothing. Oh, no, <laughs> nothing. Oh, they don't. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. It's uh, there's there's no. Um, I'd say I recall I there's no that. monetary. It's simply the honor of of you know it's sort of the highest award in in uh, journalism. I bet that opened some doors for you. I was wondering when I was looking at your history, whether that is what got you into Stanford and all the the work you've done no, there. No, no, I'd already been. I'd already taught at Stanford. No, uh, you know, it was it's something they add on to your, um, you know, your resume and to your name when you're mm-hmm. introduced at events. But that's, that's <laughs> you know, it was nice. But uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I'd gone everywhere I was going by the time. Uh, I was part of that Pulitzer group. And, okay. Uh, it, it, you know, it was at the end of my career rather than the beginning. You also were uh, teaching some journalism about that time uh, at Berkeley and Stanford. Tell me, are you, are you, are, were you seeing young student reporters cut from the same cloth as you guys at InfoWorld were? You know, it, it changed so much. I, I taught at Berkeley during the dot-com era, and it was actually quite frustrating to me because I saw basically over the course of, the, I think I taught there four or five years, um, this is starting in 92, as just as the, um, the dot-com era sort of started to really take off. And by 90, this was the last year I taught there, probably 95 or 96, um, there were more people taking my class who wanted to go into public relations than into journalism. And I was just very uncomfortable with that. Um, and you know, it, that's, that was, why did they think that that was a good idea? Because the careers in public relations were more financially rewarding even then than, than, uh, careers in, in reporting. 
Oh, so and, if you were working in public relations for a company that was uh, high tech in Silicon Valley, you had to speak the speak and talk the yeah. talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to. It wasn't fun to me to teach those people. And so I left. And then a couple of years later, I started teaching at Stanford. And um, you know, the, it, it, by that time, the, the transition and the sort of decline of American journalism was well underway. Um, two of my best students uh, at Stanford. One is um, sort of he has a high level position in corporate communications or, or public re- public relations at Stanford, and the other one, another one of them, is vice president of communications at Facebook. And so both of them wanted to be journalists, but they had to take other you know career paths to make a living. So mm-hmm. that, was, mm-hmm. that was disappointing to me. So you're currently not that I have anything. I mean, you know, I. I I uh, uh, I respect people uh, in on the communication side of the coin. I, I you know I, some of my best sources <laughs> came from communications departments, uh, PR departments of companies. So let me explore so, that for a second. You, when you guys were at InfoWorld, the personal computer revolution was astounding. Steve Jobs was appearing on the scene. We had the uh, Macintosh. We had the IBM PC. Things looked like they were going to go you know ballistic. And there was a lot of excitement about being in the forefront. But when the students came in in 95, they probably didn't have that same romantic vision of being at the cutting edge. Is that right? Well, it depends on sort of where you were. Um, uh, You know, the the Valley has always sort of uh, attracted, been a magnet for people who are seeking fame and fortune. Um, but it also is a magnet for a certain kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess you'd call them hackers, um, uh, people who are fascinated with technology. And it's been, the, to my mind, it's been the, you know, the partnership of those two cultures um, that's made the Valley what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, the perfect model is uh, Steve Wozniak, who just wants to share the computer he's designed with his friends at the Homebrew Computer Club, and as Steve Jobs who understands that there's a market there. Okay, so the next question I have is, you're currently researching a biography of Stuart Brand. I remember the whole Earth Catalog, big, giant, black book. What got right. you into that? That was, It was legendary, well, but it's been, it's, yeah, our, it's it was, our past, it, too. Yeah, but Stuart, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Stuart is um, a bit of a, um, I don't know, a Rorschach test, or um, Stuart has been at the front edge of a whole series of things that have had a big impact on society oh, going okay. to the counterculture. Um, you know, he created the well, he created the hackers conference. So he's played a role, uh, you know, in the, the, the way we see technology and use technology in society in a very meaningful way. I mean, if you go back to the opening sentence of the home of, of the whole earth catalog, it was, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And what's so interesting in the you know in the role that Stewart is seen as having in this you know the the valley has gone from being able to do no wrong in terms of uh, you know the way it's viewed in America to being able to do no right in the way Congress is now viewing Facebook and the social media companies and Stewart now all of a sudden is seen as um, you know, we would call it patient zero or the person who's created this this concept of digital libertarianism, which is actually not correct, but that's sort of, there are a couple of books that have come out recently 
um, that sort of point back to Stuart, um, Franklin Foyer's uh, World Without Mind and Jonathan Kaplan's Move Fast and Break Things, both sort of see Stuart as the source of the original idea of digital libertarianism. And so uh, I'm, I'm very interested in his, I mean, some places he's uh, an observer. Um, if you go all the way back, um, he wrote uh, an early piece on um, on space war in Rolling Stone, which for a lot of us, including me, was one of the first time we really had a sense about the arrival of personal computing and computer networks. So he said we was early to see things. Um, well, when do you think it'll be published? <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't want to put you under the gun or anything. Yeah, next year would be. I would be optimistic uh, okay. to say next year would be great. Okay. All right. Well, I see that you still contribute occasionally to the New York Times. I was looking at their bio page on you. And one of your articles that caught my eye is, What Comes After the Roomba? I enjoyed that article. You mentioned Curry. I had Chris Matthews on the show a while back, and I was on the verge of getting a Curry review unit. I couldn't wait uh-huh. to get my hands on one and have it running around the house. But as you mentioned, they had to shut down last summer because it was very expensive to develop the product. And they probably couldn't charge enough to make money. Is 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 the is the robot? Recently, I've been writing about and talking about a movie I love called Robot and Frank, uh-huh. about a retired uh-huh. uh, jewel thief who, in his retirement, is given a family service robot to help him clean house and do dishes and cook and so on and so on. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think we're going to get there soon? Are the baby boomers ever going to be able to buy a family service robot, or is it going to take longer? I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm one of those boomers. Um, that I would be extremely surprised if I had a robot that did anything like the robot uh, in Robot and Frank in, the, in my lifetime. Um, you know, I went from uh, asking, <laughs> asking technologists in the valley when they thought self-driving cars would be possible to asking roboticists when they thought there would be a robot that could safely give an aging human a shower which i would Mm -hmm. argue is a harder more challenging but probably socially more useful um robotics technology and you know that was one of the reasons i wrote that article is that there's been so little commercially useful uh, uh you know home robotics technology whether it's for elder care or for you know uh cleaning uh cleaning the floor cleaning the floor we can do we can vacuum we can mop uh and uh, i have some robotics friends and i tease them about what the next category is going to be and uh, it's a big leap to the next the next yeah. level money too let me let me well, quote well, let me yeah. quote you from the article where you quote someone the problem said uh kai fu li a leading chinese artificial intelligence researcher who is now a venture investor, says the problem is that the low cost plus the the low expected consumer cost plus high expectations plus no patience makes it difficult to bake a great product. Really true. That might be summing it up. Uh, Kai-Fu has been around long enough. Although Kai-Fu is is more optimistic than I am. Kai-Fu actually believes that these technologies will arrive. If you want to put a number on it, what do you think, 20 years? Well, so, you know, I've been around Silicon Valley to, to, to uh, know that, um, you know, anything that anybody says that has a year on it that's more than two or three years in the future is indistinguishable from science fiction. So it's <laughs> fine if you want to say that. But my sort of rule of thumb 
used to be, uh, not anymore, but used to be, if it, if it wasn't on the shelf at Fry's, it wasn't worth talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I was, I'm less optimistic about the pace, particularly since we've fallen off the Moore's Law curve really quite dramatically. And Moore's Law was a big free ride for a lot of these technologies. Um, not so much because of increasing computer power as much as, as falling cost of computation. And it's flattened out. And so that free ride is over. And so now we're stuck. You know, we're, 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 we're counting on our creativity. And, you know, oftentimes there are breakthroughs, but they are not like turning the crank on a clock. Have you ever written any articles about the creep, creepy factor of family robots? You know, you buy an IoT thermostat or a doorbell and it spies on you. Uh, you yeah. install an app on your phone thinking it's going to do something and it reports your location and things that you do and all behind the scenes and you have to read a thousand page EULA to figure out what it's doing. Um, Absolutely. Family robots are a great opportunity to put all those creepy factors all in one basket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there are a million other things. I mean, all the IOT stuff um, passes information about you back to who knows where. I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I think that, you know, I call that little brother as opposed to big brother, you know, corporate surveillance. And it's it's extraordinary, and it's extraordinary that there hasn't been kind of a um, a Chernobyl moment, you know, that has woken everybody up. I mean, have we had a data Chernobyl yet? Some people say we have, Facebook. but I don't think so. Yeah, but in terms of the popular reaction, people haven't really left Facebook. I mean, Walt Mossberg has, but nobody else has. And, and I mean, in, in terms of, you know, there's no popular movement against Facebook yet. Uh, uh, maybe one will emerge, but the, the people seem to be, you know, there's, we made this deal. It's a, a Faustian bargain we made. We get this free stuff, and in exchange, we give away our souls, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that's more of a commentary on modern culture, I think, than it is on this, the, the surveillance state. Um, I worry about I worry about um, another kind of creepy thing as opposed to surveillance. But I, I think I think of that as the Borg, you know, from Star Trek. Um, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the palm of your hand is, is all of these algorithms are running. They're all nudging you in different directions, trying to persuade you to do things. We're surrounded by a soup of algorithms now that all um, are basically not working in our interest. They're working in the interest of, you know, somebody in the cloud. Funny, I wrote an article and, about that just the other day and the stress that it causes. Yeah. 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 So I worry about that. I just, I, worry. I mean, I come from a generation that was really kind of cranky about our independence and our freedom. And now, you know, you get everything from which Korean barbecue to buy to who to marry from some algorithm that, it has what kind of motive you have no idea and i i think that's that's a real challenge to modern society i suspect there'll have to be a cultural change because the industry won't change itself there's too much money at stake to change the way things are going and so people have to make a cultural change i could i could foresee a day when there would be a backlash i hope so did you see the um the advertisement that apple took it in las vegas at ces the one on the side yeah. of the Marriott building? Yeah. Um, what, 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 what stays what on your iPhone. iPhone. It's on, stays on your iPhone. On yeah, stays on yeah. your iPhone. Yeah, so Apple... We thought that was humorous at the Mac Observer staff because the Marriott just had this giant data breach. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Well, we're about running out of time. 
Uh, I have just time, another minute or two for just another follow-up question. Um, so you volunteer, I read, at the Computer History Museum. What do you do there? Well, actually, I was on the staff. Um, I was a staff historian for uh, most of a year. Um, they were very kind to me. They sort of put me on the staff because I was working on uh, this biography, and um, you know they they were supporting that research. And I, you know that what I what I do um, as just a rule for um, uh, I, I moderate a lot of events at the Computer History Museum uh, and try to be involved in every way oh, I can. Okay, are you the guy so, who writes the placard under the item? But uh, this this no, TRS eighty from nineteen seventy six has four K <laughs> RAM. <laughs> I would love to do that, but I know those guys. <laughs> other historians. Yeah. Uh, cool. Cool. What did I forget to ask you that you want to talk about? Oh gosh, what did you forget to ask ask me? Um, well, we could we could have talked a lot about how journalism has changed. We didn't really talk about it, how that that world has changed, and I I fret a lot about that. Um, you know, I fully half of the people who I grew up with and worked with as people who are reporters and journalists editors are no longer working in the field because of the changes. And I was initially optimistic. I thought we'd cross the chasm and a new kind of digital journalism would emerge. And I still think that's possible, but it hasn't really happened as quickly as I would have hoped. Yeah, everything happens uh, behind the scenes in your browser. Everything's free. I'm I'm fascinated by um, the different mechanisms that uh, websites use. And I ran across that one in the New York Times just now because I was trying to look had an article about uh, how robot cars can't count on us in an emergency in one of your articles. Yeah. And I got blocked in the New York Times. says, okay, we're done with you. You've read your four free articles. Now subscribe. <laughs> yeah. And other, other companies have different methods to generate revenue, but it's a real challenge to figure out how to monetize yeah. the work it's, that the writers do. It's working for the Times at the moment. I mean, they have three million subscribers now, which I would it just startles me. And uh, you know, I, I now I probably subscribe to seven or eight publications online just to con- mm-hmm. uh, to support the journalism. And uh, if everybody did that, it would work. <laughs> is the New York uh, Times healthy? The New York Times is very healthy right now. Oh yeah, oh, you know there are probably three hundred more journalists working there than when I retired. Oh, cool. Uh, well, that's good so, to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah, no, it's what I worry about is the the small town newspapers and small town, oh, you know, yeah. even small town web based site. The the economics haven't emerged to allow for local journalism. You want a guy uh, with burning shoe leather figuring out whether the town council is going to allow this company to come in and give them a tax break and do some exactly. correct stuff and kind of exactly. pound the streets and figure out what's happening in your society yeah, and your community. That's what. That's what democracies are about. I agree. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we're, we are out of time. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an honor to have you. Thank you for sharing your story with us and your views. Sure. That was fun. Tell yeah, the listeners how to contact you if they wish. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just at Markoff on Twitter. I guess it's an easy way. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Okay, so folks, thank you for coming by. I hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.